Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Joe and Matt Show live on ColorCast and also on a podcast format through Limitless Conversation. Really appreciate everybody joining us today on both of these platforms. We're really excited, Matt, to be joined by a special guest today, uh, Jenny Urban. That's right. You know, Jenny is kind of our aviation's expert, right? And, you know, the backstory here is she was listening to our Super Bowl call on ColorCast and kind of wanted to give her uh, in information about flyovers at sporting events, which, Joe, I find to be fascinating because, you know, especially when it comes to drones, because the sports teams are using drones for data analytic reasons. And then, of course, everybody knows one of the most infamous uh, parts of any sporting events uh, is the introduction, the national anthem, where you have the flyover, and then also uh, the blimps that fly over. So I think, Joe, it's going to be a great conversation today and love having Jenny on anytime we can get her. Absolutely, Matt. I echo um, that sentiment as well. And speaking of which, uh, Jenny, just want to, at the outset, give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and uh, once again, kind of tell everybody about your educational background and your work experience. Yes, thank you guys so much for having me. I was, you know, listening to y'all, like uh, Matt said, on the Super Bowl, um, about the Super Bowl, and I just kept thinking that there's so much outside of sporting events that has to do with aviation that a lot of people forget about unless they're standing in those long lines after a Super Bowl event, you know, at the airport or something like that and thought this might be a great topic to chat with y'all about, especially with you guys being the sports experts. But um, as y'all said, I'm Jenny Urban. I'm an international aviation attorney. Um, got my LLM and JD from Ole Miss Law and got a specialty in aviation law. And I've worked in, you know, multiple different capacities within the legal field, doing aviation regulations, working with drones, as well as emergency and crisis response um, in regards to airport security. And so looking forward to talking to you guys about all things airports, aviation related and sports. Yeah. And hey, Joe, the other thing I'd love to say here as we kind of introduce Jenny is Jenny brings up a great point from the jump, right, from the get go. And that is. You know, when it comes to sporting events, especially Super Bowls, right, there's all these congestions happening at the airport because all of a sudden thousands upon thousands of people are traveling to the game. They're traveling to family and friends residence to kind of partake in the, the festivities. Heck, a, a ton of people just go to the Super Bowl just to be outside of it and they don't actually have tickets. And so would love to get Jenny's thoughts on that. And also uh, during this COVID environment that we've been living in, uh, I'm sure it's been uh, especially hard on all the different uh, major airlines and airports because we have these additional requirements now. Yeah, no, absolutely, Matt. Those are some great, I think, topics to delve into as we proceed today. Um, basically, initially, Jenny, if you could please tell our listeners a little bit more about the FAA and Department of Transportation uh, regulations surrounding uh, flyovers in general at sporting events. Yeah, so, you know, flyovers are usually done um, by the Department of Defense, and I think something uh, that y'all might remember was uh, back in 2018, the, the Air Force had come out with the uh, aerial events policy that had been put in place due to the spending cap, because, you know, it, while it looks so great at sporting events to have Air Force flyovers in that capacity, you don't think about how expensive that can be, you know, just even maneuvering the aircraft to that area, having the aircraft in the air, the um, 
military members' time. And so that actually was lifted, um, but they still stated that this was back in 2018. They really only approved about one-third of flyover requests to do at major events, you know, really having to keep that in mind. But that will, a lot of times the flyovers done by the military that we're used to seeing, you know, maybe right after that national anthem are, they work with the FAA and DOT, but that is the Department of Defense doing it. Now, the incapacity of a commercial aircraft sense, that's where it gets very tricky. We can go into more detail, but to give you a higher level overview, after 9-11, they had to be very careful with, um, you know, just where aircraft fly and when they're flying in that capacity. And what will usually go out, so such as, let's take the Super Bowl in Tampa, there'll be a um, NOTAM that is issued, and that will be a temporary flight restriction, so known as a TFR. And that's going to let anyone that's checking the airspace beforehand, which you are supposed to do under requirements as a pilot, Making sure whether you're private, commercial, I mean, the commercial aircraft, people pretty much always know because the airlines are going to tell them way ahead of time. But before, you know, private air, uh, a private aircraft goes up, knowing where and when you can be in certain airspace or if you can't. And those TFRs aren't just, um, they are coming out for like sporting events and they'll always be specific to the area. But TFRs are done for anything. Like there can also be, you know, a special TFR when the president is going down for an event. You know, the president might go down to the Daytona um, the Daytona car races. And so then there's also not only going to be the TFR in regards to that, to the sporting event, but also that's likely going to expand if there's the president in the area as well and making sure that no aircraft are going to come anywhere near Air Force One. Absolutely. Now, do so, these... Jenny, I actually have a question on that. And, and this may be out of your scope of knowledge, and, and I apologize if it is. But you talk about the president moving around now. Granted, uh, um, you know, a championship football team or basketball team uh, is not the president per se. But are there any special requirements or restrictions for a winning team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who were just won the Super Bowl, and of course the owners have all this money? Do they have any special ability to fly like to events like that? Um, if I understand your requirement or, you know, what you're asking, uh, a lot of times, you know, they'll charter the aircraft or they'll be, you know, doing a sold out flight from an airline. But to my knowledge, they don't usually do TFRs around that because that's just saying where the airspace, you know, who can be in that airspace with them. And to my knowledge, there isn't usually one that's around it. Now, they can be flying, you know. If the, I guess if you're asking if it would be like right after the president, typically the team would be flying back at the same time as the president, just the president's going to be there, be out, and Air Force One's going to be going. But say that there would be a, um, say the team did want to leave right after, I do believe that they would still be restricted. They would not be able to fly unless they have received very special permission, which I would, don't want to say it's impossible, but very, very unlikely that it would be granted even for the winning team of the Super Bowl. And, and so a team like, and I keep using Tampa Bay because they did, in fact, win the Super Bowl, but a team like Tampa Bay, they don't need special authorization and they don't get special uh, airspace, correct? As they travel from game to game and just move around, uh, I mean, they move around like we do, right? There's no special um, arrangements that are made because this team is so valuable and has celebrities on it and, and very wealthy millionaires, I guess is my point. Correct. To my knowledge, I mean, you can always, there can be certain requests for certain reasons. And, you know, say the FAA, who is, you know, the safety division, did think that there could be a safety concern, then they're going to issue a TFR. But just because they're, you know, the winning team or 
famous doesn't mean that they necessarily are going to get that airspace. And, you know, a good example that is maybe a little off topic, but that I'd like to bring up is my friend, Josh Ball. He is Louisville airport's um, head of public safety and security. And so he gets to deal with everyone that comes in in to the airport for the Derby. And a lot of times because they are combining both the private aircraft and the public aircraft, they're having uh, members of the Royal family. You know, I know that I believe it's Saudi Arabia and a lot of the Middle Eastern countries have members of their Royal families come in to the airport, usually on their obviously private um, aircraft, but also maneuvering them through the airport. I know him and his team at this where a lot of them and get them through. So not only the security in the air, but the security within the airport. And that is where the teams would likely have, you know, more security uh, to go through. And it definitely police escorts uh, going through any commercial aircraft space as well. Well, or Jen- airports, excuse me. well, Jenny, I'm glad you brought up the airports because I know one topic that I wanted to ask you about is could you provide our listeners with some insight in reference to maybe congestion at airports, uh, flight increases and other issues that could arise surrounding an influx of people coming in and out of a major city for either a sporting event, an entertainment event, a political rally, something something to that effect. Absolutely. So I'll give a couple of different examples. I'll um, start with, you know, Louisville, as I just stated. So on departure Sunday, which is the Sunday after the Derby, that is what most people don't realize is they're thinking, OK, well, when is, um, you know, when's it going to be busy at the airport around these events? And, you know, I never realized Departure Sunday and Departure Monday are big, big ones until I worked in this uh, sphere. So at Louisville, on an average day, they would have about 30 normal flights going out. But on Departure Sunday, they have 71 commercial mainland flights. Um, You know, that was a couple years ago when they were having more in person. But you can imagine how increasing from 30, uh, 30 flights to 71, and that's just them being commercial, can increase not only the need for security because, you know, usually after an event, people have had a lot of um, beverage, adult beverages. Um, They might not have slept. They may be angry if their team didn't win or if their horse didn't do well. So having security around to make sure that that type of um, environment doesn't get dangerous, but also having to put them through uh, the checkpoint, which may not always, and I'm not talking about Louisville in a specific event, because any airport having a huge influx of people it's hard to get them through a smaller checkpoint. You know, um, Tampa would be another good example of just that it's not necessarily, it's a great airport, but they're going to have to maneuver different things around and people need to be prepared to wait in line and knowing that, you know, if they're causing any security concerns, they are going to be pulled aside and there is regulations um, put in place that can, um, you know, where you can be arrested if you're causing security concerns in the airport. Another example would be, um, Atlanta Airport, I think we all remember when the Super Bowl was in Atlanta. Still think the Saints should have been playing in it, but that's my personal opinion. Um, that Atlanta on Super Bowl Monday did 101,999 passengers, which is crazy. Also, they were like, dang, we couldn't get that last one passenger to even it up. But that is so many people going through, and that's going to lead to like two to three hour wait times at the checkpoint, even though Atlanta is the busiest airport in the world. Um, just trying to get them through and being safe and making sure people aren't bringing, you know, things through that they shouldn't, guns, weapons, other security concerns. And then the other thing that a lot of airports and airlines have focused on, especially recently, um, and I was a big proponent of this as well, is the anti-human trafficking measures that go in. Because any large sporting event, which I didn't realize this at first, 
has um, a lot of human trafficking surrounding it, which is really sad. But having people in the airport that can spot if people are being trafficked, whether it's sex trafficking, labor trafficking, and a lot of airports and airlines are now, especially prior to large sporting events like the Super Bowl, are doing trainings um, to allow their staff to be able to know how to report something if they see something suspicious in that regard. Okay. I have a question on that. And, and again, it may be outside of the realm here for conversation, but I've actually watched a few documentaries about trafficking just recently, right? It's funny you bring that up because it kind of picks my interest. So in terms of these major events and just trafficking in general, is there some pretty serious trafficking going on in America, especially like human trafficking, sex trafficking? Because the documentaries I've watched uh, make a compelling case that this is a huge problem in America. And I could see a major event like the Super Bowl giving the quote unquote bad guys the opportunity uh, to kind of facilitate that trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been stated and there's differing accounts of whether or not the Super Bowl is the number one human trafficking in the event in the U.S. every year. Um, from the training I've done, I do believe that it is. And, you know, take let's go back to Atlanta in 2019 for the Super Bowl. Um, more than 160 people were arrested during an 11-day um, span that was um, prior ahead of the game that was all having to do with human trafficking. So the FBI went, led a task force, um, it was a human trafficking operation to arrest over 160 people. And that's crazy, you don't realize it. But I think part of the reason that this happens is, you know, there's so many people going into the city and it's a lot harder for, you know, just with so many people, it's harder to catch things going on as much. That's why they amp up security in all aspects. But it definitely is seen around large sporting events from the Super Bowl, to the Daytona 500, or I think that's what it's called. I always mess that one up. Um, but to the Derby, and it's just amazing. And I think that that's if you're ever into sports, I always recommend just even looking up on the Department um, of Homeland Security's website anti-human trafficking measures, so you could just um, are able to spot it as well. I think a lot of passengers or people at the, around these games could easily identify something that could be wrong that they might not have if they hadn't gone through that training or even just read about it a little bit. Wow, that, that's just incredible to think that uh, possibly the, the person sitting next to you in the plane wearing their fan attire going to the Super Bowl uh, could actually be someone that is uh, trying to kind of uh, undermine the system, you know, via human trafficking in some form. And so uh, that that's a crazy revelation to even think about, to be honest with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great perspective there by Jenny. Um, outstanding question as well by Matt. Um Switching gears, though, I wanted to go back, Jenny, to kind of earlier we were talking about the general rules and regulations surrounding flyovers at major events. Does any of that change if it's an indoor event? Like I think about sporting events like the NBA Finals or the Stanley Cup Finals, hockey and basketball, it's indoors. Do the flyover rules change at all for that? Hey, Joe, real quick before we jump into that question, I didn't mean to interrupt. Can we get Jenny to kind of define a flyover and kind of what that entails? Uh, and then we can talk specifically about the requirements. Sure, sure, Jenny. Yes. Well, actually, I was kind of going to ask you guys for a little bit of clarification. When you're talking about flyovers, are you meeting the Air Force flyovers? Or are you talking about any aircraft flying above? Um, you know, if you guys could define that a little bit for me, because it can be just with the, that language, it can be a lot of different things. It can be drones. You know, where, where are you asking in that regard? Certainly. So I would say 
let's define that as drones or private or commercial aircraft. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so, you know, I have not studied as much in regards to the indoor stadiums. However, because, you know, usually you're looking at the outdoor stadiums and the drone regulations in that regard, um, you know, dr dr excuse me, drone regulations in regards to outdoor um, stadiums. I do believe in this, you know, this is just my personal belief that there would likely be, if it's a large event, even if it's indoors, that they might do a um, temporary flight restriction just because that could be seen as critical infrastructure. Um, you know, even though it is indoors, just with a lot of people, you know, you don't want a bad actor carrying something on a drone, such as, you know, a weapon that then could possibly, you know, be dropped on a stadium or anything like that. And drones, you know, are not allowed to be flown over critical infrastructure um, unless there's special permits and you have to go through a whole FAA regulation for that. But I, also, within these stadiums, you know, a lot of stadiums themselves will not allow people to fly drones because it can get dangerous. You know, I have my drone pilot's license um, and I do, well, it has now expired, I should say. But while I have that, I got that, I got the license to have the background knowledge. But I cannot say, at least right now, I cannot fly a drone to save my life. Like, I'm terrible at it. You do not, I flew into like multiple walls at one of my past law firms and so did the uh, former Air Force pilot. So it wasn't just me. I do think that there are drones that are more expensive that are easier to fly, but it can get really dangerous, you know, if they don't know how to fly it. Um, there's been a lot of incidents of people, you know, the drone um, not being flown properly or trying to be carry, carrying things that it shouldn't, that can really cause a lot of danger. So stadiums, uh, indoors can also prevent people from doing that um, as well. And most stadiums do, to my knowledge. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, talking about drones, I know that we've talked before about, you know, your um, work with drones and the intersection with drones and sports. Could you kind of talk about where you see drones right now in the sports world and kind of the outlook for the utilization of them in the future? Yeah, well, I guess I should start with the overall um, regulations of drones that are not involved within like by the league or by the, um, you know, stadium, but, you know, other actors such as drone pilots and stuff, because um, it has to do not only with the drones, but also with um, the areas that they're in. So according to the FAA regulations, unmanned aircraft, um, which is drones, UAS, um, remote control aircraft, also known as drones, are prohibited within a three nautical mile radius. So within three miles um, of a stadium, and, and that's including 3,000 feet above ground level of any stadium having a seating capacity of 30,000 or more people. Um, and one of the good examples that they give is like the MLB, um, NFL, those games. And something unique about it where people were a little confused was during 2020 um, in the pandemic, you know, once they started having these games, even if they didn't have stadiums, it was, hey, can we buy a drone near this? Because what if there isn't 30,000 people in there? And what the FAA came back and said is the regulation is based on seating capacity, not people actually in the stadiums. So they still were not allowed to fly around that area. Now, what's different is I do believe Colorado might have had just a uh, where they're going to have like a drone sports league or a drone racing or drone soccer and using drones uh, with referees. Now that can be different and there's definitely special permits that you can get, but that would also fall under a commercial use and working with the FAA to test it. And I definitely think drone racing has already become a decently 
large sport in some sense, depending on where you are and which country you're in, but also using drones to be able to um, videotape and almost get a closer look at like what's happening and helping the referees from a different perspective. Um, and so that's really interesting, but that's definitely one where the stadiums work to get a special permit. And then if it's indoors, they obviously don't have to have a special permit from the FAA, but making sure they have drone insurance, hiring people that know how to actually fly the drone, knowing where they're flying, you know, making sure they're not flying in a dangerous manner, in a dangerous manner that could hurt the players or the audience. Cause you definitely don't want me flying a drone to be a referee in any event. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's one thing I've wondered is at some point will we see drones utilized for either instant replay more, even maybe a refereeing. I know that in the sport of baseball, for instance, there's been a lot of people that would like to see the balls and strikes in the strike zone called by either a robot or some type of computer device instead of a, an umpire just for the, the human error. So there's a big debate about that. So Jenny, do you see drones being used at some point as uh, instant replay or for uh, officiating? Absolutely. And I know that they've tested it in different um, areas as well. And I think that, that um, that's really cool. Like, I think it's going to be a really cool way to use technology. I think one thing we've gotten, especially from the pandemic, is how important technology is to be used in different capacities. And, you know, um, there's actually an article that came out um, – within the last 24 hours stating that the Miami Marlins are going to be able to use drones to disinfect the Marlins park. So they're going to have licensed pilots use the FAA drone technology to apply like a formula to large areas to help disinfect it for the stadium. So not only will it be instant replays, like seeing this cleaning technology being used to make sports stadiums safer to for, you know, people to come back into is a really cool way that I think a lot of sports stadiums are being innovative in that regard but i also think what's going to be interesting and that they're going to have to figure out how to do it and there's definitely the technology that exists is a lot of stadiums have also been looking at anti-drone technology um and that is to prevent people from um i think matt said earlier there's so many people that go into a city that aren't even going to the sporting event necessarily but from them flying their drone over to try and get a good view of the game that they couldn't get a ticket to and so people the stadiums are looking into anti-drone uh where it would essentially be a blocker, but if they're going to also be using their drones within the stadium, meaning the stadium where the sports team is, they're going to have to have the difference between, you know, white hat drones and black hat drones, meaning the white hat ones are the ones that are allowed to be in there and operating and aren't going to be impacted by the anti-drone technology that would be impacting the black hat drones that would prevent those drones from being able to go in um, near the capacity of the stadium. And what about just general privacy right because as you talk about drones just flying around of course like you said white hat and black hat but are there any from a legal standpoint privacy issues with uh drones around the stadium and then capturing images or video of people who do not want to be captured right are there any privacy type violations that can come about from drones there has been a lot of privacy concerns it's actually kind of funny you know there was, I saw a picture the other day, and this is, I never do this. This is not a recommendation. This is actually considered shooting down a, or an aircraft, but I saw a guy that didn't like that a drone was flying over his property, and I, you know, I don't blame him, but he shot it down. Not shooting into commercial airspace, and that's not okay. Um, but people are definitely concerned about it, and it's definitely an area that needs to be 
more highly regulated, in my opinion, or at least giving direction. Because a lot of people get these new drones for Christmas and they don't realize, hey, you can't fly it in this capacity. You should be doing it. You know, Part 107, which is the um, main regulations for flying drones for commercial uses. So if you're a photographer and going up and taking drones, does not allow you to fly over people um, without having a permit to do so. And so that's supposed to help with, you know, the privacy, which I think it does in some aspects. But there's definitely concerns. And a lot of these um, drones are having cameras or the ability to have cameras attached to them. And I would not be happy if it was flying over my airspace. And that's one of the areas they're dealing with is, you know, what's considered the airspace that a drone could fly in, you know, of a property. But I just say, you know, make sure that if you are looking to use a drone in any commercial aspect, especially around sporting events or, you know, within like if you're going to be a sports team that is going to be using drones, make sure you're hiring someone to fly that that is a licensed Part 107 pilot. Also knowing what permits you need to get and being concerned with that people may not want to be videotaped all the time by the drone. But if you're in a stadium, you pretty much know you're going to be videotaped or have pictures taken of you in some aspect. I think we're all used to that regard. Yeah, and, you know, I think there's a major concern there. And, you know, kind of my thoughts, I have a bunch of thoughts on this. The, the first one, it kind of reminds me of Snapchat, right? And I know it's a little off topic here, but, you know, Snapchat's awesome. And, and I used to use Snapchat. Maybe this will kind of age me a little bit. But my problem with Snapchat is just because you're allowed to video and take a picture of whatever you want at your own discretion doesn't mean the person you are taking a video of or a picture of that's eating and doesn't realize it, that doesn't mean you have the right to do that, right? That's a privacy violation. I don't care how you slice it and dice it. And so I kind of see the same thing with drones at major events. And I'll take that Snapchat example and I'll go a step further saying that, you know, if we ever did have a terrorist threat at a major event like a Super Bowl, it, it could be tied back to a drone, right? Someone flying a drone over it, kind of getting the lay of the land of an event like this that could ultimately plot a terrorist attack in the future. You know, I've always said that um, if you ever had a major terrorist attack at an event like a Super Bowl or an NBA championship or even uh, the World Series, it would make September 11th just be a blip on the map, right? Because you're talking about 50 to 100,000 people that show up for one sporting event. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. And you know, one of the big concerns now is that some drones are being used and, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily say this is a concern, but it is um, something that's being talked about. I think there's positives and negatives to it, but is that some of these cameras are able to use facial recognition that are attached to the drones. So, you know, is that proper to do, um, you know, by law enforcement around these areas, you know, using facial recognition software, whether it's law enforcement or also another private entity, and that's a big issue that's been raised. You know, it might help capture someone quicker, but is that proper under the law? And that's where sometimes, you know, regulations are great and they're, you know, we're trying to regulate as quick as innovations are coming about. But sometimes the regulatory scheme just has not fully caught up to how quickly we're able to innovate. And that's where there's concerns and where, you know, it's difficult for courts and, you know, litig uh, attorneys that are participating in litigation, you know, where do you look to? And, you know, there's not always been cases that set a precedent either. I could see that. Uh, and Jenny, real quick, because I know we're kind of, I'm watching the, the timer on our meeting here and I know we're kind of 
winding down. I, I have a question for you, kind of moving back to the aviation portion and, and not necessarily on the drone specific. So, you know, we, we broadcast to a lot of sports fans. And one of the things I wanted you to talk about, if you can, if you have this data or this knowledge uh, to do so, what does it look like uh, on an average week or a daily basis at like uh, the, the Atlanta airport? What is the volume of people that fly in and out versus the volume of people that fly in and out to a, an event like the Super Bowl? Um, you know, I don't know if I can speak statistically, you know, exactly off the bat, but, you know. Uh, even a rough estimate, even a rough estimate would be awesome. Yeah, so um, I'm just trying to see if they, I had any exact daily. It's hard because most of the statistics are in yearly. Um statistics in that regard but you know i gave you guys that 101,999 number of people going um it, flying out of atlanta after the super bowl and that was a extremely significant increase to an average day there i don't really want to speak to how much it is but i in my best estimates it was at least, over you know tens of thousands more than typically are flying out but you know take that with a grain of salt that's just like rough guesstimate at best. So I, I love when we get to talk to Jenny. I know this is our second time getting to talk to Jenny, and I love it because what she does is she kind of pulls the curtain back on something that we as Americans, right, because all of these events are very, quote-unquote, American in nature. She pulls that curtain back and kind of shows us the behind-the-scenes magic of what happens with, with all these events and, and how they, they're facilitated from that aviation standpoint. Absolutely, Matt. No, I, I completely concur with that. It's always uh, great to have Jenny on um, the podcast, you know, with her expertise and analysis and perspective. And I'd be remiss, Jimmy, Jenny, um, kind of as we close today, if I didn't ask you one final question. I know that you like to travel a lot in most years. Um, how has the pandemic impacted your travel schedule? Have you been able to fly recently? I have actually been able to fly. You know, of course, I'm doing it in a safe manner um but i i you know I, I might go a little crazy if i didn't fly some uh just to give you an example of how much it has impacted it in 2019 i had um i did 153 flights and then in 2020 i only did 54. so that is a significant difference but we are seeing air travel come back and one thing i would recommend listeners you know research is how safe um airports and aircraft actually are with all the ways that the air is cleaned and how airports are cleaned. You know, I feel safer in an aircraft or in an airport than I do most other places during the pandemic. So I, I really believe if you are smart and traveling and also make sure it is a federal regulation to wear your air, your mask in an airport and on the plane, that's where they've seen the most issues come up is when people are taking their uh, masks off mid-flight and going to fit saying they're not going to put it on. Just don't be one of those people, even if you don't like it, don't make it hard on the flight attendants and, you know, you'll get arrested if you do, and you could possibly be put on a no-fly list, and no one wants that. So just making sure that people are abiding by new federal regulations when they do fly. Hey, Joe, I have one more question for Jenny very quickly, and that is, Jenny, if you could, if you don't mind, because, you know, one of the things with, with me and Joe is that we have this platform that people can hear us. And so could you spend about 10 seconds just 
giving us your thoughts on, you know, what you think will happen coming out of COVID. Like, do you think a vaccine will be required to fly? Do you think from this point moving forward, we will always have to wear masks? Because, you know, me and Joe do like to use this platform to kind of spread goodwill and advice to, to people that listen to us. You know, I don't think that there's an exact answer on that yet. I think that the international aviation community is looking at um, all the different regards, but we got to make sure that global travel is able to come back and that we're doing it in a safe regard. But also, we were able to do it safely for a long time, and I hope we're able to go back to that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jenny, um, we'll have to leave it right there. Uh, thank you again so much, though, for coming on. Uh, the Joe and Matt show today and being on ColorCast and with podcast format. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, y'all. All right, Jenny. Thank you so much. All right. We will see everybody really soon. We'll actually be on, if you're listening right now, we'll be on later tonight to talk some NBA basketball during the Clippers and the Warriors. So we will see you guys very soon.